Well, good morning. I, uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Chris Bennett. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. I'm glad to get to bring God's Word to you this morning. We're going to be continuing our series, looking at the life and ministry of Paul. Last week, uh, Dave Collin took us through uh, Paul's ministry in Corinth, which marked the ending of his second missionary journey. Well, this week, we're going to be looking at his time in Ephesus, which marks the beginning of his third missionary journey moving forward, okay? So this is the uh, in light of kind of our faithful leader's absence, I want to encourage us. Now is the time you take your sip of coffee, and we're going to dive, dive in. There's a few things that are important that I want us to understand before we kind of get to the content of our sermon. So it's important to note that in, the, in between this time, in between time of Paul's time at Corinth and his time in Ephesus, a year, almost a year has passed, okay? And a few things that happened during this time. One, Paul spent some time visiting a number of churches, right? He went to Jerusalem where he spent some time there, and then he went from there to Antioch, his kind of his home church, and then he went from there and kind of went to different churches around uh, Galatia and Phrygia, and he, we're told, strengthened the disciples, right? So he went around encouraging the disciples, right? So that's one thing that happened during this time. The second thing that happened during this time is that there's a young man named Apollos, uh, who uh, began doing some ministry uh, in Ephesus. Uh, we're told a number of things about uh, Apollos. One, that he was an eloquent speaker, right? He um, was very thoughtful and well-educated. He was a man from Alexandria, uh, and he uh, had been, um, he was competent in the scriptures, we're told, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, um, Although he knew some things about Jesus, though, however, he only knew the baptism of John, right? So there was a deficit in his, in his knowledge, right? There's a certain part that he didn't know. Thankfully for him, in the audience of one of his sermons was, uh, some, were some Christians, namely uh, a wife and a husband uh, named Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, they were believers. They were there, and they attended his sermon. Uh, and uh, if you remember, we met Priscilla and Aquila last chapter, in chapter 18. Uh, they were fellow tent makers with Paul. They were uh, also, they ministered alongside of him and later became travel companions with him until Paul left them uh, to minister in Ephesus, right? Well, you know, they, so they screamed out loud from, Apollos was preaching, they screamed out loud and interrupted him and couldn't, no, they didn't do that, right? They actually took him aside privately afterwards uh, and, and they, they guided them in the scriptures, right? And they kind of filled in some of the gaps for, for him so that he could preach the full fullness of the gospel. Uh, and they did that. And we, this, we're told this had a dramatic impact on uh, Apollos' ministry, right? He actually ended up going on and uh, ministering uh, in, uh, from there to, Cor he left Ephesus and he went to Corinth uh, and he spent some time there and uh, chapter 18, 28 actually summarizes his time there. It says this, that he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing that the script scriptures that Christ was Jesus, right? So here he is, he, he was very eloquent, he knew the Bible very well and he had a very fruitful ministry. Well, it was during this time, it was while Apollos was ministering in Corinth that Paul comes to Ephesus for the second time, okay? So that's kind of where we are. And if you remember, one last little detail, back in chapter 18, verse 19, uh, Paul had spent his time, his initial time in Ephesus, uh, and they asked him to stay longer. 
And he politely declined, saying that if the Lord wills, I will return to you, right? Well, apparently the Lord willed, and here he is, he returned, right? The door opened for him to come back to Ephesus after his time of ministering to the churches. And what we find in our passage this morning is what Paul finds after being gone from Ephesus for nearly a year, okay? So that's where we're at. Uh, And for this morning, for the sake of time, we actually, I have the context in your your outline there, your um, scripture handout. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 7, okay, of chapter 19, and I'll begin there. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos, Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, and he came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we had not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men of all. This concludes the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this, um, this moment uh, in redemptive history where you show us where you were at work and how you were beginning your church. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, penetrate our hearts this morning that we might know you and love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, just last month, on June 19th, our country recognized and celebrated a newly added federal holiday uh, called Juneteenth, okay, Uh, which honors the end of slavery in the United States following the Civil War. Um, I assume that this isn't news for many of you. Many of you know know about this holiday and know what it marks as Texans, but just for a little refresher, I'm going to give you a brief history lesson. As many of you know, on June 1st, 1863, the president, the then president, Abraham Lincoln, issued the Emancipation Proclamation. On that day, the legal status of African-American slaves were changed from enslaved to free under federal law. Uh, obviously, the effects of this change weren't immediate. Uh, it took some time. The spread of the news, as well as the enforcement of the news, took some time. And so slavery in some parts of the country continued uh, for a number of years following. One of the last places that the news arrived was the wonderful state of Texas. Uh, on June 19, 1865, hence the, the holiday, uh, General Granger of the Union Army arrived at Galveston, Texas, uh, and he read aloud the General Order Number 3, proclaiming the freedom of slaves in Texas. Okay. I bring all this up because I think it will help us to make sense of what's going on in this chapter, right? In this encounter that Paul is having uh, with these 12 disciples. So I want you to do a little thought experiment with me, okay? With this history in mind, uh, imagine this. Imagine that the news from General Granger never arrived. 
Imagine that those two and a half years between the time of the Emancipation Proclamation and the time that General Granger came never actually happened, right? They turned into two, two and a half years, turned into five years, and then turned into ten, 10 years, and then turned into 20 years. Imagine being declared free, but never knowing that freedom, right? Imagine having the occasion for joy and celebration, but never sharing in it, okay? Politics and our current conversation we're having and our culture aside, I think we all could agree, right, that this would have been a great tragedy if this news would have never arrived uh, to these then people, uh, those who were enslaved at this time, right? Well, this morning, in our text, Paul encounters a similar situation, but with even higher stakes, okay? Uh, and this is what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at what does Paul find in Ephesus. Uh, one of the first things he finds in Ephesus, and this is my first point, is he finds some confused disciples. Look with me at verse 1 of our passage. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, okay? Now, uh, he discovered these disciples, and the fact that they were confused becomes evident in the series of questions that follow, okay? Uh, that go from there, okay? So the first question Paul asks is this in verse 2. Look at with me there. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? Um, now you can imagine uh, their response was probably very shocking, at least at first glance, to, to Paul. Uh, and you can imagine his response, uh, his surprise when they responded with this. They said, no, we had not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. How could this be? Be? How could they have not have known that there is a Holy Spirit, right? Obviously, there's a number of things uh, here that would have indicated that there was a Holy Spirit prior to the Holy Spirit's arrival. One, a number of Old Testament prophecies, specifically Joel 2, which is referenced in Acts 2 at Pentecost, right? Pentecost was the fulfillment of Acts 2, the sending of the Holy Spirit, right? As well as a number of Old Testament prophecies. Not to mention John the Baptist's own testimony, right? When he was baptizing um, all the disciples, right, he proclaimed that one mightier than I was coming, right? And he will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit, right? So the Holy Spirit was nothing new. It wasn't something that was necessarily unfamiliar. Many scholars and commentators think that what's going on here isn't that they didn't know that there is a Holy Spirit, but what's going on here is actually that they didn't know that there was a Pentecost, they didn't know that the Holy Spirit had already come, right? So that's what's going on here and kind of makes sense in, uh, in a lot of ways. And so uh, Paul asks a second question, a more exploratory question, now that he's learned this new information. He says this, uh, into what then were you baptized? They respond, into John's baptism. Okay, here we go. Herein lies the tragedy, okay? This is the connection to the opening illustration that I was trying to make, okay? They only knew John's baptism, the baptism of repentance. They, they only acknowledged that their, their sin by repentance, but they didn't know that their sins had been dealt with on the cross. You see, they knew that Christ and the Holy Spirit was coming, but they didn't know he had already come. Do you see the tragedy in this? Um, uh, like Apollos, they had only received the baptism of John the Baptist. Also, like Apollos, 
these guys were behind the times, approximately 20 years behind the times, right? This is like someone nowadays driving around with their car and having a Bush or, or Obama sticker on the back of their car, right? They were behind the times. A lot of things had happened since then, right? I could have chosen someone else, but I didn't. So uh, there's a lot of things, right, that has happened since then, and they, and they realized this. Um, this is the tragedy. If you remember, Jesus and John the Baptist's ministry overlapped for a period of time, okay? Uh, and so they lived during the same time. And at one point during John's ministry, while he was imprisoned, uh, waiting on death row, right? As, as he's waiting there, he sent some of his disciples to go find Jesus and ask him if he is the one, right? Luke 7 gives us the account. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, uh, to to, to John, and he said, and John, calling two of the disciples to him, sent them the, to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? All right, here's what's going on. It says, if these 12 disciples in our passage were stuck in this conversation, they were stuck not knowing what had happened, what was going on. This is the great tragedy. You see, many things have happened since then. Jesus had died. He had been resurrected. He has ascended. He, the Holy Spirit had been poured out on Pentecost, and they didn't seem to know that any of these things had already happened. Like Apollos, they, Apollos, they needed to be brought up to speed. But unlike Apollos... They didn't have someone to do that until now. Enter Paul on the scene. Look with me at verse 4. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Right? Uh, what Paul encountered on that day was a tragedy. You see, these men were repentant and they were expectant, but they didn't know that the one in whom was going to rescue them from their sins and the one who was going to come had already come, right? This is exciting, right? Understanding this, Paul intervenes by sharing with them the wonderful news, right? The greater one, the one whose straps and sandals John the Baptist didn't feel like he was able to tie, had come. He had arrived, right? And not only had Jesus arrived, but the Holy Spirit, the greater one, has come and has dwelt with his people, right? Having the gift of faith, the news was so amazing, and it was so wonderful that it came in with a communicative display. That's my next point. What does Paul find in Ephesus? Well, we find some confused disciples, and he finds a communicative display, okay? Where do we see that? Well, quite literally, it was a display of communication. Look with me at verse 6. It says this, And when Paul had laid his hand on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Okay, now, well, this is strange, especially for us as Presbyterians, right? Makes us a little uncomfortable as we're hearing this, right? What is going on here, right? What is all this talk about prophesying and speaking in tongues, right? Why pair them, these, uh, these tangible, audible, um, visual events, with their faith and conversion and baptism? Well, I want to propose to us this morning and to you that this was a significant moment in redemptive history. You see, these tongues and prophesying were, were like a display of fireworks, if you will, 
4th of July, uh, were meant to highlight, right, that something really important was happening. Something in this moment was significant and it was happening, right? This wasn't the first time that we've seen a display like this in the book of Acts. In fact, we see it at first at Pentecost in Acts 2. Uh, We see it, we're told that the sound of a rushing wind comes on and tongues of fire come and they speak in tongues uh, and many believe. In Samaria, in Acts 8, we see it again. Uh, We're told that people believed, they were baptized, and we're told seeing great signs and great miracles performed, right? This is obviously, tongues aren't alluded to explicitly, but we're implicitly, we're to assume that something audible, something visible took place during this moment, right? And then Caesarea was the third place that this happened in Acts 10, right? Peter is there, he's proclaiming the gospel, and and who is he proclaiming it to? Well, to uh, the Gentiles, to Cornelius specifically, right? The Holy Spirit falls, they speak in tongues, and then finally, the fourth occasion, the last occasion in Acts that this happens, is here in our passage with the the disciples of John the Baptist, okay? Okay, why bring this all up? Well, there's several things, right? What do these four things have in common? Well, I will propose this. All four of these events involve important new groups, this is important, important new groups that are being added to the church. You see, Christ's church was expanding, and God, through this demonstration of the Holy Spirit, was highlighting these moments, okay? That's what was going on here. And so something significant and unique was happening here. If you look at uh, just the book of Acts, just in general, right, it is a great turning point in the history of redemption, right, of the church. Um, And what was different about this point in history was that the long-awaited Messiah who had lived, he had died, he had been resurrected, he has ascended, and the pouring of the Spirit was happening on the church with all of its gifts and benefits. You see, God was establishing the New Testament church, and he was transforming the covenant community from an Israel-based group into an international one. You see, when we go back to the basic outline of Acts, if you're, in my, if you're a young adult and you're in my Sunday study, right, I always went back to Acts 1.8 because 1.8 gives a basic outline, outline for the book of Acts, right? We're told in 1.8 uh, that before Jesus ascended to go to be with the Father, that he said this to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in where? In Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? That's the outline. Um, What we see as we trace Acts is this progress happening, right? And at these specific moments when it's happening, we see these displays coming out. I'll give you uh, some examples of this, okay? There's four occasions. The first one I said was Pentecost, right? Who was the audience at Pentecost? Where was it? It was in Jerusalem. Who was the main audience? The Jews. Where was the gospel supposed to go first? The Jews, right? That's what we see happening here, right? The gospel, the Holy Spirit is poured out in a tangible, audible, visual way on the Jews, okay? What's the second occasion? It's in Samaria. Do you all see it? You'll be witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, and all of Samaria. Do you see it? There's the pattern. Here, the gospel, in a very tangible, audible way, is being poured out. The Holy Spirit is being poured out on the Samaritans of all people, right? This was, the Samaritans were vehemently opposed by the Jews. They didn't like them. What was God saying in doing this and giving such a tangible marker on this moment? They're my people too. You don't decide who's in my kingdom. 
I decide, right? That's what he's saying, right? The third place. Where does the third place happen? Caesarea, right? Who's, who's there? Cornelius. Cornelius isn't a Jew. He's not a Samaritan. What is he? He's a Gentile. Do you see this? He is representative of the ends of the earth, right? That's the third progression of the gospel going out, right? And here we see another demonstration of this, highlighting this moment. And then finally here with John, uh, John's disciples, we see this moment happening, right? And this was important for John the Baptist because he was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, right? He had imagined, right, his ministry had a huge, he touched so many lives, right, with his baptism, right? There was hundreds and hundreds of baptisms that he performed. God, in performing this moment, is validating his very ministry and saying everyone who, who was baptized and was anticipating the, the, the return of Christ to forgive, forgive sins is now brought into the kingdom. Do you see this? Do you see what's happening here? Is it clear? Through these visible and audible public displays of the Holy Spirit descending down, God is communicating to the early church and the readers of Acts that all of these groups are being included into the new covenant community. Right? This is powerful. Prior to these four events, there's only one other time in which we see such a public display of the Holy Spirit descending in the way that he does. And that is at the baptism of Jesus, okay? What is remarkable about this, right, is that what was once exclusive to Jesus is now being poured out on everyone who believes in Christ. Do you see that? That is remarkable. What once was, had the pleasure of dwelling on Christ now dwells on you and I, that is amazing. It's remarkable. Don't let that hit. It marked a new dawn. It marked the beginning of a time when God's presence and power was going out in a way that it had never gone out before. All right, pause. <laughs> what are we to do with this? That's great. God worked in amazing ways back then. What about now, right? I would imagine many of you, like me, I've never personally experienced this kind of visual, visual audible display of the Holy Spirit coming upon me, right? And I would imagine and venture to say that none of you here have either. Um, are we to conclude that we are inferior Christians? Are we to conclude that we are some sort of lesser Christians who haven't received this special anointing of the Holy Spirit. Um, some have used this text as a proof text for a two-stage conversion, uh, particularly charismatics and those in the Pentecostal tradition have used this to kind of say that there's a second level, right? You become a believer, right? But then you eventually have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And this is usually marked by the speaking of tongues, right? Well, others have also used this text to advocate for a Christian perfectionism, right? So uh, somehow when you become a believer, right, you get the benefits of God, but then somehow uh, you eventually, through your own piety and your own working and striving, you eventually reach perfectionism. And at that point, the Spirit descends on you and you're in a second level of Christian, right? Well, is this the case? Is that's what happening? Is that's what's happening here, right? What is this? Are Christians to expect a second blessing or to reach some sort of second level? Is this gap between the conversion and the baptism of the Holy Spirit normative for today? That's the question we're trying to seek. Well, thankfully, we have good reason to think not, and I offer you a few points of consideration. 
First being this, there, you know, well, although we may acknowledge that there may be strong connection between baptism and belief and conversion and the Holy Spirit throughout Acts, right? Here's the first point. There is no consistent pattern, okay? Here's what I mean by that. If you look at chapter 10 with Cornelius and the Gentiles that's happening there, Holy, the Holy Spirit descends before baptism. If you look at the Jews at, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes at baptism. It's, it's like simultaneous, right? Then if you look at our current passage and you look at uh, Simon and the Samaritans in chapter 8, what we see is that the Holy Spirit comes after baptism, okay? So here, here's my point. Here's the takeaway if you're not following me. At the end of the day, it is difficult to look at Acts for a pattern of Christian experience. Instead, we have to look elsewhere. We have to look to the epistles, right? And there, when we study the epistles, the other letters in the Bible, what we see is that at conversion, we receive the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, we receive all its benefits as well. Secondly, it's not, there's no consistent pattern. Secondly, it's rare. Remember, I just gave you four instances when the Holy Spirit descends in the way that it does here, okay? Um, and this was, there are many other conversions that took place in Acts uh, that we can look at, right? Um, there are more times in Acts when someone is baptized without visual and audible display of tongues than with it, okay? Uh, I think of the Ethiopian treasurer, Saul of Tarsus. Was he a, is he some sort of lower-level Christian, right? I hope not, right? He admits in Romans, one of his later letters, that he struggled with sin, right? We see that over and over again. Um, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, and so forth. Lastly, and this is a point I've already made before, is that this was a unique time, okay? It was a unique time. It was a unique time in redemptive history. The gospel was going to places and to people groups that it had never gone before, right? It was a time when God was establishing his church and providing a foundation to go forth on. And so we conclude, there is no second baptism needed, right? There's no second baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? Needed, right? Uh, there's no second level that we reach, right? There isn't a gap between our conversion and when the Holy Spirit comes and descends on us uh, later. The Spirit is given to all who rest in and love and know the work of Christ, okay? Although the Holy Spirit may not display himself in this way that he did then, here's, here's, this is important, we mustn't ever mistake the lack of public display, displays of the Spirit for lack of the Holy Spirit in our life. Okay? That's important. Make no mistake about it. The one Holy Spirit and the same Holy Spirit that was at work then is at work now. But more often than not, that Holy Spirit works inside of us through deep character change rather than outside of us in spectacular displays, okay? Okay, so what does this look like? All right, so what? This is, there's a lot of stuff that you stuck with me so far, right? There's, it's a lot to take in, but what does this mean? What does this mean for the believers? What does this look like? How should we, as Christians, expect the Holy Spirit to work presently in our lives? What value is the Holy Spirit to us as Christians now? I would suggest to you that not only is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that was work then at work now, but also that the same Holy Spirit is of infinite value and of utmost importance to the believer. Okay? John Calvin puts it this way. As long as Christ remains outside of us, 
and we are separated from him. In other words, as long as the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in us, as long as that's true, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of, human, of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. You see, I'll summarize it in a pithy statement. Jesus is our salvation, but the Holy Spirit is salvation applied. Okay? The way that we receive all the benefits of Christ and the way that we receive the new status change is because the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you and me. That is no small thing, my friends. Okay? That is no small things. What Scripture tells us is that if we have faith in Christ, then we, receive, then we have received the Holy Spirit. Galatians 3, 2 through 7 make this clear. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Is it by doing good things or is it by faith that you receive the Holy Spirit? He, he says later on in verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. So he gives us the answer. The answer is that we receive the Holy Spirit through faith in him. We are also told that if we have the Holy Spirit through faith, then we also have Christ. Ephesians 3, 14 through 17 says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. This is why Paul prays, right? You get a little insight into his prayer life. For from every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through what? His Holy Spirit in your inner being, that so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. You hear what it's saying? The, re- the way that, the, that Christ dwells in you is through Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit, Christ dwells in our heart. And so, if we have the Holy Spirit, therefore we have Christ. And if we have Christ, we can be confident that we have all of his benefits as well. John, one last scripture reference here. John 16, 13 through 15 says this. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he, speak, he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, the Spirit, for he will take what is mine, Christ, and he will declare it to you. All that, is, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine, and he declares it to you. You see, we have all the benefits of Christ because the Holy Spirit gives us that. So what does that mean? If Christ is in us, then we are in Christ. We are united to him. This means that everything that is Christ is ours. Right? We have been united to his life and his obedience. That's important. Because that means that we have his righteousness. The reason why God looks at you as, an, as holy and declares you a child of his and is glad to receive you back into his home is because you have been united to Christ's righteousness and his perfect obedience, right? We've been united to his death and resurrection, right? In, in his suffering, his death, right? We have suffered alongside of him, but in his life, we have new life, right? It's because he was raised that you and I are able to resist temptation, to fight sin, to glorify him in any way. We have been made new creation, a new creation, right? The old is gone, the new has come. We have this ability to be transformed. This means that sin no longer has the last word. We've been united to his ascension. This is important. Right now, 
our Savior, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what that represents? It represents that he is finished. The work is done. Right? Salvation, our hope, is secured. It can't be taken away from us, right? This means that his victory is our victory. The assurance of victory is ours, right? All of this is ours. All of this is ours because the Holy Spirit makes it so. Jesus is our salvation, but the Holy Spirit is salvation applied. I'm going to read one quote, and I'm going to end with this, um, because I think it's very powerful. Uh, John Calvin, if you're interested at all in the Holy Spirit, uh, Sinclair Ferguson has a great little book on the Holy Spirit. I highly recommend it. Uh, In that, he quotes the the wonderful uh, John Calvin, and he says this, and I'll end with this. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that is of him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in his anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion and rule. If purity, in his conception. If gentleness, as it appears in his birth. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion or death. If, if, we, if acquittal, it's in his condemnation. If in remission of the curse, it's in his cross. If it's reconciliation in his descent into hell. If it's mortification or death of the flesh, it's in his tomb. If it's newness of life that we desire, it's in his resurrection. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from the fountain, from this fountain and from no other. You see... The way that we have access to Christ and all these benefits is because the Holy Spirit gives us access. That is no small thing. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And, and we thank you for, for, for you, our God, our Father, who sent Christ to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you for that the Son was willing to suffer and die on our behalf and that it was for the joy set before him that he did so. And Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. That it is by your Holy Spirit that we know all the benefits of salvation and we can be confident that they are true. Lord, we thank you and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.